Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. You guys can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to jump right in to what will be the final message in this series devoted. Uh, We're going to draw this series to a close by looking at another must-have element of biblical fellowship. And I can't stress that enough, church, that it is a must-have element of biblical fellowship. And Acts 2.42 tells us plainly that that element is the element of prayer. Acts 2.42 says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, and if you read this in the Greek and you understand what is present, the definite article and the term in the plural, you will understand that it says to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Most English translations do not include that, but that is what the Greek says. So what we've talked about up to this point is that in order to be a highly effective church, we need to do things God's way, right? Spiritual abs require spiritual exercise, require spiritual diet. For us, the spiritual abs would be to be an effective church, to be a church that pleases God. And in order to do that, we need to look to God's word and do it God's way. Amen? So we look at God's word and we say, how do we, how do, we do this right? Well, God says, here's how you do it right. And those elements are a dedication, a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. That is the faith. Uh, the, the scripture tells us that we, we believe in the faith once delivered to all the saints. We hold to the truth that was passed through the apostles to you and I, to all of us. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, okay? So we have a foundation upon which we stand, amen? That is a huge peace for us. So we have the faith, which is the apostles' teaching, and then we have practice, as most churches would say, faith and practice, fellowship. Fellowship is an essential element of the Christian church, and this fellowship, as I've spent a lot of time talking about over the past couple of weeks, this fellowship is not you and two guys, two buddies, two, two, two families hanging out and doing your thing. That's great. That is really cool. That's called community, and you should do that more often, but why should you do that? Because the scripture tells us quite plainly that bad company corrupts good character and that we need to be in the fellowship of God's people. Amen? That's a really, or in the company of God's people. But fellowship, rightly defined, is defined per the scripture. And so when we see this, we see that faith is the apostles' teaching, practice is fellowship, and that uh, what stands in opposition to fellowship are these two characteristics. The breaking of bread, properly defined, Properly defined, we've got to be careful on what we're doing. We have made a ritual of things that has become meaningless. And you have my word on this, church. Although this will be ripping the rug out from under some people, I promise that I'll do it gently. I promise I'll ask you to step to the side before I pull the rug up, okay? But we are wanting to understand how to do breaking bread, breaking of bread, according to the scripture, the right way. How many of you know this? I know that this is a tangent, but I think you guys will benefit from it. How many of you know that the scripture says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me? As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You know what the modern church has made that to mean? Do this every time you get together, right? 
That's what the church has said. And so there are traditions and rituals that people live by and die by. They say, if there are not communion elements at our church on every Sunday, that's it. We can't do it. The Bible doesn't say to do it that way. Instead, what the Bible does say to do, which is really even more challenging for this generation and this culture, is that the Bible says that breaking of bread includes a meal. Breaking of bread, properly defined as per the scripture, is never said to be what we see in our rituals in the church. But instead, is people sitting down, Christians sitting down at a meal together and sharing that, those elements within that meal that say, we are a people under Christ's body. We are a people under his blood. We are a people under his lordship and his kingship. And so that's what breaking of bread is, rightly understood. So I I hope that you'll uh, brace yourself for the changes that we are hoping to implement and, and to bring about because we want to do things God's way. We want to be effective in this Uh, area of our Christian life. So the first element of fellowship is the breaking of bread. The second one is the prayers. And the subject of prayer is, of course, no small matter, as I'm sure many of you know. Prayer is often said to be the most neglected and yet desired spiritual discipline. How many of you would say, by a show of hands, I want to pray more? Okay, hold your hands up, keep them up, right? Look around. Look around. I want to pray more. How many of you would be honest and say, I also neglect this this activity of praying? Look around. It's the most desired and it's the most neglected. Now, I would also say that genuine biblical study, genuine dividing the word of truth is actually the most neglected, but it's not the most desired. We neglect reading the Bible, but nobody says, man, you know what I wish that I would do more? I just wish that I would read the Bible. Most people go, I can't understand that thing. Okay? Well, you can. I assure you, you can. Listen, it, it is not as complicated as people have made it out to be. You just have to know how to study it better. So, We have these disciplines that are neglected, and some are more desired. LifeWay Research conducted a survey of several thousand Protestant believers inside of the U.S., and the study showed that only 48% of Protestant believers set aside time for prayer of any kind on a daily basis. And yes, there are multiple kinds of prayer. (laughs) Okay, It's not just the all-request hour with Jesus. It's not just you rubbing the genie's lamp, letting him pop out, and you tell him what you want. That's, that's not the way this works, okay? There are many other forms of prayer, but 48%, uh, only 48%, set aside a time. And to confirm my point about Bible reading, and this is staggering, only 19% read their Bible on a daily basis. And make no mistake... It's not that they listen to their Bible, they just don't read their Bible. They don't engage their Bible, period. 19% is all that are professed to engage with the scriptures on a daily basis. As the authors of this survey rightly said, uh, there is simply no good light in which to cast these discoveries. You can't spin that good, okay? 48% of us uh, dedicate a regular time during the day to prayer. Most of us do not. We desire to do it more, yet we don't. So prayer is neglected and yet desired, but why? That's the question. In my dealings with people, as I, as I sit across the table from many, many people, 
throughout my weeks, throughout my life, I've discovered at least one crucial reason for weakness in this particular area. And make sure you hear me, far be it from us to make this reason an excuse. It's not an excuse. we got to get over it. We have to move on. We are a people full of excuses. And just so you know, those excuses started in the garden, right? Well, what happened in the garden? Adam's like that woman, right? And guess what, Nathan Daniels? It has continued ever since because of you, okay? Because of him, into you, okay? So this is just not a good thing, right? So it's not an excuse. It's just something that we need to engage with and overcome. The reason is that people don't understand prayer. That can't be our reason to not do it. What our, reason, what our uh, uh, practice should be is, well, let's figure it out. Amen? Do you guys want to figure out how to pray? Do you want to figure out how to pray as per history? Do you want to figure out how to pray as per uh, the first century church and how the church continued in prayer throughout the ages? Because what you're about to learn when you see this is that we are not just a people uh, insufficient in prayer. We are so far from what prayer was and what prayer is that it's just disturbing. It's, it's downright sad. So we need to understand uh, how to pray. Either we don't understand the history of prayer or we don't understand a right philosophy of prayer. And this includes types of prayer that go beyond just asking God for stuff. Or we don't understand the effectiveness of prayer. And that is on both God, uh, if such a thing really happens, and I believe it does, or on the prayer. Okay, so is it effective? Is, is prayer even going to do anything? I think when people don't believe prayer is effective, they don't pray. Is that right? If you don't think prayer is going to do anything, well, why, why bother with it? Okay, well, that needs to change. We need to understand what prayer does and how this works. Now, uh, the effectiveness of prayer, small soapbox, uh, the effectiveness of, of prayer is not to be conflated with this modern idea, this modern phrase in the church that is, I believe in the power of prayer. Okay, I know that I'm going to make enemies, but I hate that statement. Why? Because prayer has no power. The God of prayer has power. The God of prayer has power. And the God of prayer has invited you to petition him and to call on his name. Amen. But if you prayed to a stick, it ain't going to change anything. Amen. Prayer has no power. The God behind the prayer does. And so his invitation is that you coming to him has an effectiveness. But the prayer in and of itself, what is that? What is that? But this is what we do. This is the church today. I believe in the power of prayer. Good. Yeah, and we're one nation under God. I don't know what either of those two things mean. It's just generic nonsense. Are we under Jesus Christ? Is he king and Lord? And are we calling on him because we believe that he can move the heavens and the earth? That he is the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? That he can change our circumstances and our life at any point? That's a whole different situation. That's a whole different situation. But listen, we've lived so far with these little platitudes that even to challenge them irritates people, which is why God put me here. Anyway, okay. So this morning, I, it is a horrible lot in life, but it's my life. So this morning, I hope to at least begin a more robust discussion on prayer with the hopes that it will, in fact, spur each of us 
to a more devout prayer life. First, here's the outline. First, I want to establish the structure and adherence to prayer for the Jewish people. It is fascinating, and it will, it will overwhelm you. Uh, remember, Jesus did not come to found a new religion. How many of you know that? He was the fulfillment of a, and I know this is a crude way of saying it, but he was the fulfillment of an old religion. He was the fulfillment of every promise God had ever made since the beginning of creation. Now that blessing extended past the Jewish people, amen? He was the seed that was a blessing to the whole world, and you and I are the whole world that is a part of that, amen? So the Gentiles are wrapped into that, and we get to be a part of that. Prayer was and is a vital component of that Jewish life from which we derive our practice and our faith and our understanding of things. In the Jewish context, prayer was far more than petition. Oftentimes, oftentimes, prayer was to remind the people of divine truths about God. So in much of the Jewish prayer, what you're going to find is it was actually a declaration of truths about God. You go, but that's not prayer. Prayer is only asking for things. That shows how fundamentally messed up we are in our definition of prayer. Prayer can only be asking God for things. Prayer is also, by the way, prayer is also a conversation. How many of you know people that when you're having a conversation with them, all they ever do is want, 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 want. They need, right? How many, how many of you had kids? That's a better question, right? Okay, so you have kids. They want, 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 right? How refreshing it is it when you sit across the table from somebody and you realize they don't want anything? It's like, wait a second, time out. What's just about to happen here? Is this like friendship or something? Anyway, right? So you, you sit across. That is part of prayer, where we spend time with our Heavenly Father, where we spend time with our King, and we actually converse with Him. Another element of prayer is to declare truths so that those around us can understand who He is and so that we can remind ourselves who He is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? These are, these are prayers, but these are declarations. So we're going to see that, that, church, or that prayer is far more than the church understands today. Second, I want to show you that the first believers, the believers in King Jesus or Messiah, were dedicated to and desired to live a life of prayer. And guess what? That life of prayer was more regimented than anything you would imagine. Everybody in the American church today says, man, I can't even carve out 15 minutes on my drive to work while I'm completely distracted by lunatics on the road. And the first century church prayed like Jewish people prayed three times a day. I'll prove it in just a second. For an hour each time. What? What? Nathan, I think you're crazy. Oh, trust me. It gets crazier than me in this sermon. So anyway, so we've got to understand that. I want to show you that the first believers were dedicated to and desired a life of prayer. Third, we're going to revisit Acts 1, uh, 2, and even dabble into chapter 3, along with various New Testament references, a passage in Corinthians, which is predominantly a Gentile-believing world, to show that this practice of devotion to prayers, the prayers, was not only common for the church, but it was an explicit component of fellowship. There's a reason why prayers are a marker for genuine biblical fellowship when we come together. And this has everything to do with reminding one another of these divine truths. And finally, I'm going to put all this together by restating this, this Acts 2.42 filter through which our church is going to keep viewing our life. 
We're going to keep viewing how we operate as a church, not only this year, but in the years to come. Because if we can be devoted to the things that God has called us to be devoted to, we will be effective. Amen? We will be effective. So with this outline, let's start with number one. First, the structure and adherence to prayer for the Jewish people. Ronald Eisenberg is the writer of a book called The JPS Guide to Jewish Traditions. It is, uh, it is a go-to source that I have that I, that I rely on a lot. Very vetted, very well established, and very widely used for understanding Jewish tradition and where we got most of our practices from. The Jewish practice of daily prayer was the school in which Jesus learned to pray. If we are following Jewish customs, we will follow the exact custom that Jesus was brought up in. Some people look at that and they say, what do you mean Jesus was brought up praying like Jewish people? Yeah, the scripture tells us that he was growing in his understanding. He was a boy. He came as a man. God was 100% man. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God in, in this incarnation. So he comes. Of course, he lays down that power. He lays aside that power. He's not going to lord it over anybody. But he comes in this man state, in this incarnate state, and he learns to be a good Jewish boy and consequently a good Jewish man. And so following Jewish customs, Jesus himself prayed three times a day. Prayers were instituted in the synagogue and corresponded with daily offerings of the temple. These are the names of the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. The first is the shakarit. Okay, and I should say that with more phlegm, but I don't have enough water right now to do it, right? But the shakarit, which were the morning prayers. The second, or the afternoon prayers, by the way, that morning prayer would happen somewhere around 9 a.m. Then you had the, the minka, which were the afternoon prayers. Those occurred about 3 p.m. And then you had the ma'ariv, or the evening prayers. Okay? These were things that were prayed every evening. And we have great testimony to these being Jewish practices all throughout the scripture. But one that is very clear is found in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Here's what Daniel says up on the screen here. Daniel will tell us that uh, at the second half of this, that he continued, this was, there was a, a decree against Daniel and against all the Jewish people in Babylon, that they were to only worship and praise uh, the king of Babylon. And he continued to kneel on his knees, look at the line, three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Because this was just their tradition. This is the way they operated as Jewish people. Those three hours of prayer were the daily habit of every devout Jew. And they still are the daily habit of devout Jews. Morning and evening prayer had two main parts. And some of these terms will sound familiar to you. This first one definitely should. And that is the first part of the two parts of the morning prayer was the Shema. Anybody ever heard that term, the Shema? This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And it goes on all the way to verse 9 by saying, These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently. By the way, the words were on the hearts of people in the Old Testament, just so you know this, right? To teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your foreheads. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the first part of this was the Shema. The second part of the morning and evening prayers was called the Tefiyah. Okay, and more on that in just a second. Afternoon prayer at 3 p.m. only included the Tefiyah. So let me, let me explain what these are. Before and after reciting the Shema, the creedal prayer of the Jewish people, the worshipers would pray several blessings. They were also known as benedictions. Okay, very interesting things, but they were benedictions. And, and important, uh, it's important to note that each person added private petitions following these rote prayers. So they would pray these specific prayers, and then they would follow that up with personal or private petitions, right? So, so that's a really important idea, right? So that we can, we can understand that. Sorry, I've, I've lost my place here. So uh, we need to understand that, that rote prayers are not of the devil, okay? <laughs> and this wasn't the invention of the Catholic Church, mind you. This was just people who did what the tradition continued to pour out before them. So, so they would pray these things, and then they would offer uh, their, own, uh, their own kind of prayers. The second part of the morning prayer was called the tefiyah, meaning the prayer in a proper sense, right? And this is where we get into the fundamental understanding of prayer as a way of life as well as repetitious. The tefiyah proper was a hymn made up of a series of these benedictions. And by the first century, there were 18 of these benedictions strewn together into one prayer, the prayer, the tefiyah, and it was set to a melody. So they, they're a very melodic people, by the way. And so they would actually sing this. The first of those 18 benedictions says this. And if you were to talk to a devout Jew today, they would know this right off the top of their head. Blessed art thou, O Lord, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, most high God, Lord of heaven and earth, our shield and the shield of our fathers. Blessed art thou, O Lord, the shield of Abraham. That was just one of 18. And they would sing this. Okay, so they would they would declare the Shema, they would pray or declare the Shema, and then they would go into the Tefiyah, which was this big strewn together series of prayers. Well, Jesus knows this. Jesus, when he was speaking about God, saying that God is the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Mark 12, 26, or that he's the Lord of the heavens and the earth, Matthew eleven twenty-four, come directly from this benediction. This is exactly what these Jewish people prayed in a common way. As well as these three uh, daily hours of pray, uh, prayer, Jesus learned the traditional Jewish prayers before and after each meal. Uh, those were the things we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, like the blessings over the cups at Shabbat um, or any of those other, uh, other things, Sabbath prayers, every, every Sabbath uh, evening. They would pray these specific prayers. So, so Jesus knows this. Now we can see that Jesus prayed more than just his own petitions to God, his own made-up uh, prayers, uh, by seeing what he says or what he prays on the cross. You remember this prayer on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that prayer on the cross? Yeah, it's a direct quote from Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22.1. He just quotes David in what he's doing. Now, there is obviously a spiritual meaning to this. But let me also point this out to you, which is a really powerful image for you all to think through. In Mark 15.25, it tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Do you know when the third hour was? The third hour was 9 a.m. The third hour was Shakarit. Our Our Savior was so dedicated to a life of prayer that he prayed while dying. And we can't make 15 minutes of time for it. Seriously, church. This is just downright sad. Of course, Jesus' prayer extended to all kinds of times. It's just a a short sampling of it, right? He prays uh, before his baptism. He prays the night before he chooses his apostles. He prays at his transfiguration. He prays before he heals a deaf man. He prays before he raises Lazarus from the dead, before he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? He prays when uh, when they returned from their first mission. He prayed on the night of his passion. He prayed at the Last Supper, and he prays again on the cross. He's a praying Savior. He's a good Jewish man. And he called us to a life of prayer just the same. So I hope you can see the devotion to prayer set in the Jewish context. Okay, But now let's roll it into the church. Let's roll it into our life, in our world. So number two, the first believers were dedicated to and desired to live a life of prayer. We see this not only in the request to be taught how to pray by Jesus' very own disciples. Mark quoted this this morning in Matthew 6. We also see it again in Luke chapter 11, which I'm going to touch on if I have time for this. But uh, we see them saying to Jesus, teach us how to pray. We want to know how to pray. They had the same problem that we have, and that is they lacked an understanding. Not only an understanding of how, but an understanding of why. What is the purpose of these particular things? So Jesus teaches them how to pray. uh, This idea goes even further. Jesus corrects his disciples on many occasions because why? Because they won't stay up. And this is a really important thing to note. It says you can't pray with me for an hour? Yeah, three hours a day they prayed. And that hour they couldn't even do it. Why? Because they were really pitiful Jewish people. And he was a really good Jewish man. Okay? So they could not do this. But he is calling even his own disciples. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this on the head just in a second. Because I think there's some problems with the way, again, a fundamental misunderstanding of saved by grace that just distorts our view of these spiritual practices. Jesus also... Uh, Uh, reprimands the Pharisees. You remember this story? He flips the table uh, in the temple. He's flipping the tables. What is his main problem? Of course, that they're evil and vile, right? But why does he deem them evil and vile? He says, you've made this house a den of robbers, but what is it supposed to be? A house of prayer. His anger is because there's no devotion to prayer whatsoever. So prayer animates, again, the entire ministry of Jesus. Prayer was what he learned first from the liturgical traditions of Israel. And those were three hours a day and Sabbath and synagogue prayers. But guess what? He passes those uh, lessons, he passes those teachings on to his disciples. 
The church prayed as Jesus prayed, as Jesus' Jewish uh, heritage prayed early on. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts records three different times of these three prayers a day. We see it in Acts 3.1, in Acts 10.3, and Acts 10 verse 30. I want you to note something. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. This is fascinating. Remember, we're coming right off the back of this great effectiveness uh, model. Uh, dedicate yourself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, that is, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In chapter 3, starting at verse 1, if you're not careful, what you'll do is you'll read the Bible the way you always have read the Bible, and you'll read that chapter 3 is all about a story just intending to communicate that the apostles went into the temple to heal a man. That is not why they went into the temple. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John, look at what this line says, about to go into the temple, not about to heal him. That wasn't what they were going there for. He begged and asked to receive alms. Where were Peter and John going? To the temple. Why were they going to the temple? To pray. Peter and John, sorry. Jesus forgot to mention this to you. You're saved by grace through faith. Ritualistic prayer is not something you participate in. That's works and you're trying to earn your salvation now. Nobody said such a stupid thing to these two. Because that's a foolish idea in the modern church. We are saved by grace through faith. Our faith works for us. And our faith leads us to a life dedicated to prayer. But what we have is a church riddled with statements that say, Hey, if you start going and putting regulations on me, I think you're trying to make me earn my place before God. And I'm not that guy. Sorry, you're listening to too many idiot preachers. Smart, smile, okay? I'm, sa I'm sorry about this, but it's a problem. Jesus never corrected these disciples, and neither did anyone else. They went to the temple to pray because their dedication extended even into the new covenant, even into redemption inside of Jesus Christ. Church, we've got to see this. And again, we see it in Acts 3, Acts 10, over and over. Paul's instruction to pray continually without ceasing, day and night, however you want to interpret it, is a reminder for the early Christians to observe this kind of prayer. Now, I need to ask you a serious question. Are you humbled by the amount of prayer that these people followed and how little we give to God? Are you humbled by that? I can't hear you. Yes, here's the important thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's conviction all day long. There is a call to live a life that is holy and pleasing to him. Why is it that people think Jesus would come to redeem humanity from their sin and to bring them into fellowship with him and then say, you can talk to me or not, doesn't matter. Think about it. Think about it. Hey, David, I love you, but I'll never talk to you. What sense does that make? That doesn't, it doesn't make sense, church, but that's what we've done with prayer. Don't turn it into religion, Nathan. Don't go doing that. Okay. You can take it up with Jesus if you want. Don't recommend it. 
Romans 12, 9 through 13, this paints a beautiful picture of Acts 2.42 in practice. This was Acts 2.42 in practice in the Roman church. Starting at verse 9, Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9, it'll be on the screen. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love it. Awesome. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Yes, this, by the way, this was written to New Testament believers in the church to abhor evil, right? Uh, we're love, love, love. Okay. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. I forgot to add cling to what is good. But verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. And look at this one. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Why do I point that out? You say, Nathan, that doesn't prove anything. It just described what happened there. Yeah, it actually does. But the Greek is what you need to understand in order to let that speak for itself. Be devoted to prayer in Greek is literally translated, be faithful in observing the rite of prayer. Be faithful in observing the R-I-T-E, the rite of prayer, the practice, this place that we're supposed to be in. Church, we are called to be a praying people. By the end of the first century, the church had replaced the traditional Jewish prayers, said at the three hours of prayer, they didn't replace the three hours of prayer, they replaced the prayers that were prayed at the three hours of prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. They prayed this in these same slots, in these same times throughout the first century church. As a matter of fact, the Didache, which I have mentioned many times, the dictates of the apostles in 8.3 says this, Three times daily you shall pray thus. Three times daily you shall pray thus. And then look what it goes on. It goes on to say uh, the Lord's Prayer. And then it cites the Lord's Prayer. Three times a day, the first century church. Now, most people just blame this all on the Catholics and say they just went into rote prayer and then it became religious and it became nothing. But the truth is, that's nothing in the minds of these people in the first century. That is a distinctly Protestant problem that we have, that we like authenticity. Okay, jumping up on another soapbox here. Okay, we love authenticity. You know how you know when you're really flowing in the spirit? You know how you know when you're a genuine Christian? When you just pray and say, God, use me, and then it just flies out your mouth. Nope, that's what being an idiot looks like, okay? What, I'm serious, okay? This is, this is not good. Authenticity, if you are an authentic God follower, here's what is beautiful about it. You have been shaped and molded by the word of God. It has changed the very essence of who you are to the point where what you say is what God would say. What you think is what God would think. Being authentic is nonsense if you are not authentically redeemed. If you are not authentically God's child. But this is what happens. So, so what have we done? We've thrown in the Protestant movement, in the Protestant world, we've th I'm not advocating being Catholic by any stretch of the imagination, but what I'm saying is we've thrown out things like this because we go, ah, it's lifeless. Yet for thousands of years, people did it. Huh. It's amazing. As a matter, of, a matter of fact, many still do this, but somewhere around 500 years ago, we just decided to change that. Not all denominations did. 
There are many that hold to this very well. Many who hold to this very well. And we need to be a people who come back and realize there's value in being this kind of people. There's value in being a people who pray, even if we're praying, wrote prayers religiously and faithfully to God. We, of course, need to check our heart, don't we? Of course we do. Jesus himself tells his disciples not to pray with vain babblings, just carrying on and on. How many of you have ever been in a church service where you've heard somebody pray something like this? Heavenly Father, thank you, God Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, Father, Father God, God, Father, Father God. They just, there's no thing coming out of their mouth. It's total nonsense. This is vain babbling, church. But just because you attach God to it doesn't make it special. I know, I, I love, I love the looks I'm getting. It's so <laughs> impressive. People are like, that, that's it. Somehow he bugged my room when I'm praying. I don't know what's happening here. But listen, I get it. A dagger's done. I'm uh, dismount from my soapbox here, right? There are so many Christian practices that we do this with that we throw out the window because we have no idea, no understanding as to why or what they accomplish. You know, when Paul was dealing with a dominant Gentile audience. He, I have Catholics on my mind. But anyway, it was dealing with a dominantly Gentile audience. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he's taking, on, um, he's taking on idolatry. And here's what he says. He says, verse 6 says this, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and, exi- and, uh, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Does that, does that statement sound familiar to you? It should. It's Paul's adaptation which gets him nearly killed of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul to the Corinthians says, Oh, by the way, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things have existed and for him, and one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. Church, we should memorize this. We should know this deeply because this is what Paul goes to in his confrontation against idolatry. We serve one God who is Father over all. All things exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. This is the Shema of the church third thing that I want to share with you is that this practice of devotion to the prayers was not only common for the church, but is also an explicit component of fellowship. This is the shortest section of the entire sermon, much to your joy. But Acts 2.42, right? Continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Those are the two benchmarks. And fellowship is defined as breaking of bread and prayers. If all we ever believe that prayer is, is praying for things from God, we miss it. When we understand that prayer was a declaration of truths, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we understand, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all exist, live and move and have our being. When we understand those things, we understand why it's essential to fellowship. Here's the truth. Because you and I forget it all the time. The essential element of fellowship is to pray prayers and to continue to be a people of prayer because you and I forget who we are. We think because of all the worries and all of the trials of life, that is who we are. Who are you? I'm the person worried about. No. Who are you? You are King Jesus' 
child, right? You're his brother. That would be the more theologically correct reality there. That's who you are. But how do I know that? How can I be reminded of that? By us coming together and by praying. So this is the final piece of it, and that is this filter. We want to be an effective church, right? We want to be an effective church. There's all, a thousand ways that the, ch- the world tells us to be effective. Here you go. go to two services. That'll change everything. It'll increase the amount of people that come to your church. That, that'll do that. Yep, and it'll zap the life out of our church. We've been there, and it's not done good. But Nathan, do you want to stay this size forever? I just want to do what God wants us to do. And everybody on our, our leadership team wants the exact same thing. And we will do whatever it is that it takes to get there. Whatever it is that takes to get there is what God's word tells us to do, okay? And we've got to submit to that. And it comes at costs, right? It comes at costs. We live in a world that doesn't like truth anymore. How many of you know that? We don't like truth anymore. And guess what we're teaching? The apostles' teaching. <laughs> We got to look at people and say, but the Bible says, and they go, I don't like you, bye. Okay, that's fine, right? Listen, I need to also state something very important here. That does not mean we always get it right. But the church has no grace any longer. So if you don't get it right every time, we're walking. Are you kidding me? You want that in your life? You want the people around you to walk every time you get it wrong? We'd all be alone, by the way, (laughs) right? We'd all be alone. Everybody's divorced. Everybody's alone. There's no nothing. But instead, we got to have grace. But our goal is and our dedication is, our devotion is to the apostles' teaching. So as we move throughout this year, we're going to ask this question. Is it centered on the apostles' teaching? That is, does the word of God say this is a method or a means by which we should live? And if it is not, our answer is we don't have time for that right now. We're sorry. We don't have time for that right now. We don't need to be spinning our wheels doing all kinds of things that we're, we're going to be bogged down in and die in. We don't need that. What we need is just to get busy with what God has called us to do. Amen? So the first filter is the dedication to the apostles' teaching. The second one is to fellowship. Man, I hope you guys want to spend more time together. I really do. Because I want to spend time with you. Maybe, maybe some. Anyway, no. <laughs> I was looking at Jerry and I thought he'd get it, but he didn't. Anyway, so I, I want to spend time with you. I hope that you see that that's important. That fellowship is important. I've asked this so many weeks. I've asked the question, how many of you feel depressed or how many of you feel alone? And you know what? That is not a question that many people easily raise their hand to, okay? Because there is a, there is a, a moniker that goes with that. There's a pity that comes that we don't, we don't need pity. What we need is help. What we need is love. What we need is compassion. People in today's world are alone more now than ever. And the solution, God says, is hang out together, love each other, break bread together, be identified by my body and my blood, and pray together. And we go, got anything else? Got any any other thoughts? Like, can't we just go to the movies? I mean, won't that cut it? Won't that work? The answer is no. Spiritual abs, spiritual diet. Spiritual abs, spiritual exercise. Amen? I know. I know this. It's just like last week. I know. This is my life. I know this is challenging, but it's doable. It's doable. 
So dedication to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. We're going to ask the question, is this going to uh, drive our church to spend more time together, to be together under this identifying truth that we are bought by the blood? That we are a people who are dedicated to praying together? If the answer is no, then our response is, maybe it's cool, but we don't have time for it. We don't have time for it. We've got to stay focused, church. The days are, the days are strange, in the world today. Uh, the arguments that are, that are happening in the world today are arguments that not one of us saw coming 50 years ago. Boys are girls, girls are boys, everybody's what they want to make of it. We are a confused culture. And if the church is refusing to stand up and speak the truth, not like jerks, right? I don't have to go burning anybody at the stake. We're, this is not who we are. Okay, But if we can't even talk about it, if we can't even address those issues, if we cede that territory to the enemy, um, we have someone to answer to. Right? We have someone to answer to. These are hard times, and we got to get back to doing what we're supposed to do. Most of you are like, I'm just uncomfortable even hearing that subject be brought up. But guys, it's knocking on your door. It's knocking on your door. 20 years ago, I, uh, my goodness, there's not enough soapboxes for today. 20 years ago, even among, this is important, even among feminists, 20 years ago, even among feminists, what happened at the Super Bowl halftime show would have irritated everyone. It would have irritated everyone, even a feminist. And now... Half-naked women dancing on poles is empowering to them. If you, that doesn't break your heart, your heart's already screwed up. Your heart has a problem. Somebody that's a friend of mine said it very well when they posted this. They, they simply, I know I'm going to make lots of enemies on this. But they said, listen, it's really hard to uh, fight the uh, objectification of women outside of the arena when you spend an entire half an hour objectifying them inside the arena. You know what the, you know what the Super Bowl uh, promotes? They promote diligence to stop se sex trafficking while the Super Bowl is going on because apparently it goes up like a ridiculous amount. Okay, And they get people being vigilant about it. And so they want to stop the objectification of little women or even older women, younger women, whatever it is, the objectification of women, and then the Super Bowl halftime show is a display in objectifying women. What in the world? What in the world? Guys, it's knocking on your door. And of course, you can say, well, we just turned it off. We did too. We did too. It doesn't matter. The culture's winning the argument. They'll chew themselves up before too long, right? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But do you see how far we've gone? 20 years ago, even the most avowed feminist would have said that that was ridiculous. And now we do it. The Babylon Bee in its joking, satirical fashion, right? That's what its point is. They said that, uh, just a fascinating post, it was funny as can be. They said the, the Super Bowl guys have found a way to uh, eliminate wardrobe malfunctions. They eliminated the wardrobe. That's sad, but that's true. That's true. 
Church, we, we, I know, you're like, why is, he, why is he jumping onto this? Guys, we are God's instruments here. We can't even get our house in order. What are we doing? This should break our hearts, church. should break our hearts. But we have to start by our hearts being broken on our devotion to King Jesus. It has to start with our devotion to prayer. It has to start with our devotion to God's word. It has to start with our devotion to singing and fellowshipping together through prayer and breaking of bread. It has to start here. It has to start here. And in 30 years, in 30 years, we will gauge whether or not we took it seriously. We will. You know that generation that people laud the 50s where it was leave it to beaver and, and they didn't even show the back of a toilet on a television screen because that was seen as immodest? That generation still couldn't stem the tide. We are here even though at one time we were a leave it to beaver generation. We're here because sin is horrible. Sin is vicious. Sin is rampant. Sin wants us dead, just like the enemy. Okay? What do we do? We don't hope that our grandpa's generation will actually overcome it. We do what God says and stay vigilant. That will overcome this. The gates of hell don't have to prevail, church. They don't. They're gates. They don't do anything unless we run the other way. <laughs> right? And that's what the church is doing right now. So our mission this year, dedication to the apostles' teaching, including all of that. Dedication to the apostles' teaching, being very clear on, on what we stand for with regard to holiness and righteousness. Fellowship, as defined by the word of God which is a people that are marked out because we break bread together. The symbol, the dinner and the symbol that comes together and says we are Jesus' people. And last but not least, a people who pray, a people who pray more than just a little bit on our car ride into work because that's all time we have for Jesus. I know that this breaks your heart. I know that most of us are sitting here going, oh, why can't I just come on a Sunday and leave feeling like I'm awesome? Because the culture reveals none of us are. We may be loved by our creator. We may be not under condemnation by King Jesus. But we are all under conviction. We are all under conviction. And it is our responsibility to humble ourselves to return back to the Father's feet and say, Lord, help us to do it right. Cleanse us, purify us, heart, mind, soul, spirit, body, tongue, everything, and then send us out to actually preach the message that the world needs to hear. Instead, we've softened the message. We softened the message. This began in 1957 under the... Under the tutelage of a man by the name of Bill Bright. For the first time in Christian history, the message was presented to the church. First time. Do some study, you'll find out. First time in Christian history, the message became, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
For 1,900 years of church history, the message was, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Repent and believe. And in 1957, the message that dominates every preacher you hear today, mark my words, is God loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Sure, there's truth in that, church. Sure, there's truth in that. But as I get up week after week after week and say, he loved you enough to die for you and to redeem you and to call you from sin and to life, and he called you to be on mission to the world that is dying every single day, And all we do is say, God, I didn't have any time to pray this morning. I don't understand your word. It doesn't matter to me. I'm sorry, guys. I get, I get eaten up inside as a pastor watching people come and go from church for the pettiest and most stupid reasons I've ever imagined. Meanwhile, none of us are broken about being Jesus' servants. None of us are broken about it. I'm a professional Christian and I'm not broken the way I should be. Oh, it breaks my heart, church. And no, this is not a pastoral breakdown of any sort. This is truly the heart of God and what he expects of us and what he wants from us. I am more energized and more excited about the mission that I'm on every day of my life. For the first time in the eight years of this church's life, I have a team that I can stand behind and stand with and love beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is an amazing, amazing team. The future of what God has planned for our church is absolutely amazing under this condition. We do it his way. We do it his way. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Sorry, I can't see you. That's bad. With tears and bad vision, it's really not good. We have an amazing team. We have an amazing life ahead. But that life has to be submitted to King Jesus, amen? It has to be submitted to King Jesus. So I've, I've gone for a very long time, but I want, to, I want to take our time as Phil comes up, as the worship team comes up. I want to take our time of repentance that leads into this moment, uh, some expression of communion. I want, to, I want to call you, if you're willing, to cry out to God in repentance with me for not being on the mission he's called us to be on. And I'm going to ask you to do something really, really obscure. It's the very song that Phil sang in the last part of worship. And that is, knees to the earth. I'm going to ask you to humble yourself. I'm going to ask you to get on your knees if you can get there. I understand that. That was not meant to be a joke. If you can get there, please. Don't think for a second you're beyond this. Don't think for a second. The church, the world is not in the conditions it's in because, well, three of them are doing it right. No, not true. There's not a day that goes by that we can't all afford to come back on our knees before our Heavenly Father and say, Father, please cleanse me and purify me of unrighteousness. Amen.
So I'm going to ask you. You can turn around at your chair, kneel down. You can come up to the front of the stage and kneel down. But I'm asking you to come to this place that we fall on our knees again and we call on the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, for empowerment, and for strength. And there is no better image to set for our kids than to be a people who lead the way in repentance. Amen? Let's do it. Boys and girls, as you come in this auditorium, our objective right now is to be a church of repentance, a church of prayer, a church of calling on the name of the Lord and asking Him to forgive us when we were not on mission for Him and to call us to that mission again. This is why your moms and dads, this is why your friends are on their knees. I ask that you would sit quietly as we pray and we call out to God. Father, the things that we ask of you, the forgiveness that we ask of you is for a waywardness, for a brokenness, for a a people that know what we ought to do and still don't do it, for a people who have a desire to pray but not a willingness. Father, we are sorry that we have not given ourselves to you fully. We are sorry that we let the worries and the cares of this life choke out the word which gives us life and gives us abundance. We are sorry that we have allowed the message uh, of the gospel to be co-opted in so many different ways. Father, we are broken people who are in need of your forgiveness and in need of your salvation, in need of your grace. Father, we are a people that are in need of your sanctifying work, that you would come through your spirit, that you would blow over us, and that you would mold us and shape us into image bearers, redeemed, rightful image bearers, following after you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. A church that is dedicated and devoted, wants to give everything they have to who you are and to what you say. Father, we are sorry for ignoring you, We are sorry for putting things as more important than you. We are sorry for idolatry and for putting things above you and in that position which is first place. We are sorry, Lord, for all of those things. And we call out by the powerful, mighty, majestic name of Jesus. Please, God, forgive us of our sinfulness and our unrighteousness. We stand on the promises that you have given us, that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But we do not come to the table in brashness or arrogance, Lord. We come in humility. We may be bold as children are bold, but we are not coming to you with pride, acting as though you owe us anything, but coming before you knowing that your promises are true. And everything that you have declared and said are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Father, we are sorry. And we ask that you would help us, grow us, strengthen us, call us to be the people you have intended for your church to be. The hope of the world in this world. In Amelia, Ohio, Father, we thank you. Father, if there are sins that we have committed this week that we need to lay at your feet, we do so now. 
Father, if there are things that we have done and we just have no idea about them, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and call on your name. Lord, we want it your way and not ours. We want it your way and not ours. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.